You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. A new rat goes after Arabic-speaking targets, updates on U.S.-Iranian tension in cyberspace, an Internet Explorer bug is being exploited in the wild, a patch will arrive in February. A pseudo-vigilante seems to be preparing Citrix devices for future exploitation, Mitsubishi Electric closes a breach, a booter service dumps half a million Telnet credentials online, and tomorrow is the last day to file a claim under the Equifax breach settlement. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, January 21st, 2020. Cisco's Talos unit has described Jonrat, a remote access trojan currently active against Arabic-speaking targets in Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Egypt, Libya, Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, Oman, Yemen, Syria, UAE, Kuwait, Bahrain, and Lebanon. Its custom code, not a commodity attack tool, and its use seems to be part of an espionage campaign. The attack begins with phishing, offering a Microsoft Word file hosted in Google Drive, the better to evade detection by email screening tools. The document itself has the naive name Urgent, which ought to place people on their guard. The next step is to induce the recipient to enable editing, after which the rat will install itself on the victim's machines. The malware also is installed in four distinct stages. Cisco Talos points out that this particular campaign offers a good example of how attackers can make use of cloud services to render its traffic more obscure and less immediately suspicious. CISA Director Krebs is quoted in Fifth Domain to the effect that the threat of a retaliatory Iranian cyber attack was diminishing over time, but the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation has warned the more than 5,000 banks and financial services institutions it supervises that they should be on heightened alert for cyber attacks. While Iran may not, as the verdict argues, rush into attacks on U.S. infrastructure, it's nonetheless worth reviewing Iranian capabilities. APT's 33, Elfin, 34, Oil Rig, 35, Charming Kitten, and 39 all have well-established track records, and, as Intsights explains in this context, there's also an active hacktivist community more or less aligned with Tehran's goals. So far, the U.S. has seen the hacktivists conduct some low-grade vandalism, but the big professional APTs, beyond their year-long reconnaissance of infrastructure targets, have so far been no-shows. Still, looking to your defenses remains a good idea. As an op-ed in The Hill points out, the U.S. and Iran have been swapping cyber operations for about a decade. Both sides have shown patience and some strategic focus, and this seems likely to continue going forward. 
An Internet Explorer vulnerability is being exploited in the wild, but Microsoft won't have a patch available until February, TechCrunch reports. Microsoft has offered some workarounds and advice in the interim. It's assigned the identifier CVE-2020-0674 to the bug, but information is sparse. The Zero Day, whose exploitation Redmond optimistically characterizes as consisting of limited targeted attacks, is a remote code execution flaw. It's believed possible that it may have some similarities to the Firefox bug Mozilla recently patched. Kihu360, which ZDNet says Mozilla credited with tipping them off to the Firefox vulnerability, tweeted that the attackers hitting Firefox were also exploiting Internet Explorer. But that tweet has been deleted, and Kihu360 hasn't elaborated. Over the weekend, Citrix issued firmware patches for Citrix Application Delivery Controller and Citrix Gateway versions 11.1 and 12.0. CISA, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, recommends that users apply the patches promptly and to do the same with other fixes for CVE 2019-19781 the company is expected to release over the course of the week. The vulnerability is being exploited in the wild and in an interesting way. Security firm FireEye late last week reported that someone is scanning for vulnerable Netscaler devices, clearing them of any malware they find, and then installing a backdoor payload FireEye is calling Not Robin. FireEye acknowledges the possibility that this may be a vigilante operation, but the installation of a backdoor in addition to clearing out other people's malware suggests it's probably not so. The company thinks that whoever's been compromising Netscaler devices may well be preparing for a campaign, and so it's probably prudent to regard this as more battle space preparation than, you know, the man who shot Liberty Valance. As FireEye explains, the actors, quote, remove other known malware, potentially to avoid detection by administrators that check into their devices after reading Citrix Security Bulletin CTX 267027. Not Robin mitigates CVE 2019-19781 on compromised devices, but retains a back door for an actor with a secret key. While we haven't seen the actor return, we're skeptical that they will remain a Robin Hood character protecting the Internet from the shadows. End quote. And those, friends, are words to the wise. We are a good 18 months or so into GDPR being in effect. The world keeps on spinning as it tends to do, but how much of an impact has GDPR actually had? Carol Terrio takes a look. So the world of GDPR. On the 11th of December, a German internet provider, One in One, faced a whopping $10.6 million fine for not adequately protecting personal information of its users. Now, according to the BBC, Germany's data protection watchdog said that anyone who called One in One Telecom could get extensive personal information about someone else solely by giving their name and date of birth. I've invited John Fielding of Apricorn, who is a bit of an expert on all things GDPR, to try and give us some insight on where GDPR is today and whether all these fines are working. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So what do you think about fines like this one, the one that one and one are facing? There have been some significant um, fines or notices of intent to fine that have been applied um, since GDPR became live. I think the notable ones are... British Airways and Marriott Hotels in the UK, at least, who have uh, 
an intention to find from the ICO of around about three hundred million pounds, just short of that, and, and Google in France, who were hit for forty-four million euros. Do you think, in your own opinion, do you think GDPR is a good thing, good thing for the EU? Yeah, so I think irrespective of, of geography, it's good for you and me as a, as a, as a resident, as a citizen, citizen of a country. The main tenet of GDPR is to make sure that that data that we provide, whether it be you know, our health information or our financial information you know, or whatever else, is protected. Do you think companies that are headquartered outside the EU take GDPR seriously? So like big American companies, which have perhaps less uh, strong data protection laws in most states, as far as I know, um, it must be very difficult for them to have to meet these standards. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think if we're, we're talking about, you know, something that's happening wholly within the European Union, then, then it's much easier to understand how the, the sanctions will, will apply and, and, and the process will be followed. When you start to look at companies outside of the EU but still handling EU citizen data, then you know I, I'm not I'm not truly sure how that would all work. I think it's more about you know where is your data going to be held, right? So if the app is in a country that you don't necessarily trust, then you could make a personal decision as to whether you wanted to to move forward with it. The one big beef I had was that every company seemed to implement it in their own way with their own plugin. And they all had different layouts and approaches. And that seemed to me just incredibly wrong. Yeah, I, I agree. I think one of the challenges that we've had with GDPR, that it's, it's been completely uh, non-prescriptive in terms of technology and, and how people do things. So it gives you kind of best practice buzzwords about, you know, you will keep information secure, you will protect the individual, but there's actually nothing underneath that as to how you, yeah, or, or recommendations or suggestions on technology, or as you say, page layout. So that then is left to each individual uh, company. Mm. John Fielding, thank you so much for all your insights. It's been very interesting. Okay, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. This was Carol Terrio for The Cyberwire. According to the Japan Times, Mitsubishi Electric yesterday disclosed that Chinese actors hit the company with a massive cyber attack last year. In addition to personal information on some 8,000 individuals, attackers may have obtained, quote, email exchanges with the Defense Ministry and Nuclear Regulation Authority, as well as documents related to projects with firms including utilities, railways, automakers, and other firms, end quote. The personal data exposed in the incident belonged to nearly 2,000 new graduates who applied for jobs at Mitsubishi Electric between October 2017 and April 2020. Others who were job hunting with the Tokyo-based firm between 2011 and 2016 were also affected. The company noticed an anomaly in its networks in June 2019. Investigation of irregular activity on devices in Japan eventually revealed that someone had obtained unauthorized access to management networks. Those parties are believed to be Chinese criminal gangs. In other news from the cyber underworld, the operator of a booter service, that is, a service that offers distributed denial-of-service attacks for hire, has published Telnet credentials for more than half a million servers, home routers, and smart devices. Why would they have done this? According to ZDNet, which asked them, the booter service has now been upgraded to a higher-end model. Instead of just riding atop vulnerable IoT devices, henceforth it will rent high-output services from cloud providers. Thus the fire sale, we guess, although the specific motive for making mischief in this way still strikes us as obscure. The leaker said they compiled the list by scanning for devices 
with exposed Telnet ports and then tried first factory default credentials, followed by easy-to-guess password combinations in a credential-stuffing effort. And finally, are you thinking of filing a claim in the Equifax breach settlement? Well, if you are, the deadline is tomorrow, and you'll need to have your paperwork ducks in a row to qualify. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. It's good to be back, Dave. Uh, you have a, a, an interesting story to share with us this right. week. I, I think uh, for, for folks who are getting into the industry or think about how they got into the industry, uh, you've got some interesting insights here. Yeah, I didn't start off in the tech industry at all. I mm. started off in uh, trying to go into uh, into mass media, and that turned out, not to work out well for me. And then I went into what I called my failed sales career. Uh, I'm not really a good salesperson. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, so you learned? So I learned, yes. So I learned. I thought I was. I was not. Right, right. Um, after my failed sales career, I I, I took a job uh, doing some test and evaluation stuff for a government contractor. Hmm. Uh, and it was, it was good work, but it was not very engaging. And uh, at the time, I was living in a place called Knoxville, Maryland, which is next to Brunswick, Maryland, which is way out by West Virginia and Harpers Ferry, just across the river from Harpers Ferry in Maryland. Okay. So 
The middle of nowhere. The middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> and my job was in uh, Arlington, Virginia, down in Crystal City. Ooh. Right? So yeah, that's, my, for those who aren't from this area, that is a hike. That is a hike. So my, my commute every day involved getting up, driving to the metro. Mm. Then that took about 45 minutes. And then taking the metro for about an hour down to Crystal City and mm. then coming back. It was a long, arduous commute. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there. I've got, uh, I've got a wife and a daughter at home, you know, infant daughter at the time. And I'm wondering, you know, what am I going to do with my life? That's really the kind of phase of my life that I was in. Mm-hmm. And one day I'm walking out of the metro, coming home from work, and there's a guy standing there. And he goes, I need a ride to the parking ride. I need a ride to the parking ride. I lit, missed the last bus. I need a ride to the parking ride. And he's just standing there asking for a ride. And I said, I'll take you. And he gets in my car, and uh, we drive up to the parking ride. And on the parking ride, he goes, you have any technical skills? Right? I said, well, you know. Not really officially. I, I, I taught myself how to program a computer when I was 12, but I haven't really spent a lot of time working around computers lately because mm-hmm. this was the early 90s. Um, and, you know, I have a computer and I, I, I know how to work on it and fix it and everything. And the technology fascinates me, but I don't know that I have the skills that I could, that merit calling myself technical. Yeah. And he goes, if you have any technical capabilities, you need to get into this field now. And he, he tells me that he has a high school diploma, right? He doesn't have a college education mm-hmm. uh, and that he is a Linux administrator and he is making twice what I'm making, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, that's interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. So uh, I take him up to the park and ride. I drop him off and he gets in his car and he, I never see him again, mm. right? I've, to this day, I've never seen him again. He did not try to sell you any magic beans or he, anything like nothing that? Nothing like Just that, Just off no. he went. Okay. Just off he went. As yeah. far as I know, he walked out of my car and disappeared, mm-hmm. right? But the next day, I was talking to a guy I shared a cubicle with, and he said, uh, you know, you already have one degree. You could just go get a second degree at University of Maryland, University College, now uh, Global Campus, University of Maryland, Global Campus. Right. At the time, they had in-person classes, but it was targeted for military and working people. Hmm. And that's what I did. I went out, and the first thing I did was took a Novell Netware class <laughs> to be mm-hmm. a Netware administrator. Mm-hmm. And immediately after taking completing that class, I, uh, I had a job in IT. Hmm. So this guy changed the entire course of my life in one car ride. Hmm. Uh, and, and I never had the chance. I think I at least owe this guy dinner. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So if you're out there listening, oh. reach out to me. Oh. I'd like to say thanks. It was, a, uh, you know, it was about 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So In the Maryland area. In the Maryland area, uh-huh. right. Yeah, that's how interesting if that person would remember that encounter that uh, set you off on a particular There is path. a very good chance that person has absolutely no recollection <laughs> of, this, of this encounter, that it was unremarkable to him. And yeah. That, uh, you know, but to me, it was absolutely life-changing. Well, and I think there's a, an important lesson for our listeners here, which is that you, you should be open to having your life go in a different direction. You yeah. never know where that catalyst is going to come from. That's right. Uh, and also, you took the initiative to take those classes. Yep. It didn't take a lot for you to be, equip yourself to be able to, to go on that other path. And you probably, who knows if you would have even explored those possibilities had it not been for this person. Yeah. You found out that, hey, I can do this. Right. And, yeah. here you, and here you are today. And here I am. Yeah. Yep. All right. Good story. Uh, good, good stuff to know. Yep. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. 
And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.